Welcome back to the ACRO Files. Our listeners know that the American College of Real Estate Lawyers is a national organization of more than 1,000 distinguished practitioners fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate. We continue our series of podcasts with iconic real estate investors who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions for the future. But today, we pivot slightly to welcome David Rubenstein. David is not a traditional real estate investor, but he is a lawyer. He is a co-founder of the Carlisle Group, among the most successful private equity firms in the country, including some serious investment in the real estate sector. David's accomplishments are far too many to summarize here. Let's just say that leadership at Carlisle, service, service as board chair at places like Duke, the University of Chicago, and the Kennedy Center, creating the idea of patriotic philanthropy and authoring a series of books, including most recently, How to Invest, an inspiration for this series of podcasts. I think that we can safely say that David is among the most respected investors in the United States. David, thank you for joining me this morning. Jay, thank you very much for having me. So before we get into your investment strategy and views about the current state of the economy and where things are headed, why don't we roll the tape back to Baltimore and tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up and how you ended up in Durham. Okay, I grew up in Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore was uh, the place that my, I guess my grandparents had uh, immigrated to um, and my parent, grandparents and great-grandparents came from Russia, Ukraine area. Uh, my father uh, was uh, dropped out of high school to go into World War II. He came back. He met my mother. They got married at what seemed like the unseemly age of 20 in his case, 17 in her case. Uh, I was born more than nine months later. Um, I was their only child. My father didn't have a college or high school education. He worked in the post office his entire career. Uh, I knew I had to get scholarships to get into college or be able to afford college, I should say. I got a good scholarship to go to Duke, though it certainly wasn't a basketball scholarship. And I went to Durham uh, for my undergraduate work. And then ultimately, with a scholarship as well, I went to the University of Chicago Law School. And um, I've tried to give back to those universities. I've been the chair of the Duke University Board, and now I'm chair of the University of Chicago Board. Um, I should say, uh, Jay, that when I went to the University of Chicago Law School, I only got one A-plus in law school. The grade I got it in was in real estate. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm really good in real estate, so I'll become a real estate lawyer. So I went to Paul Weiss, and they put me in the corporate department. I said, no, no, I, I got an A-plus in real estate in law school. I should be in the real estate department. So they put me in the real estate. And after a couple of months, I realized that uh, real estate law wasn't quite as exciting as real estate development in law school. So I got out of the real estate law. Had I been better at it, I would admit it might be a member of uh, your organization and probably be listening to somebody else. But um, for better or worse, I wasn't a very good real estate lawyer. So um, we'll come back to some of those points. You went, I think, straight through from college to law school, right? Correct. And why, so why law school? Well, um, if you in those days, this is the uh, early 1970s or so, if you were Jewish, uh, your parents wanted you to be a professional. You'd be a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist. My mother wanted me to be a dentist. I didn't really want to do that. So I was down to doctor or lawyer. I was better in subjects that seemed to make more sense for being a lawyer. 
And I was frankly very interested in politics and government. And so I didn't really want to practice law so much as be involved in government. And the making of money was not something that was that much on the horizon. In those days, uh, people didn't seem to be obsessed with going into the, the world of making money. If you uh, were a business-oriented person, you might go to business school. But in those days, the best students, honestly, went to medical school. The second best got PhDs. The third best, in my observation, went to law school. The fourth best just didn't do anything afterwards. And the fifth best went to business school. In the, those days, business school, you could go to Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, right out of, out of college. And, and I didn't really have a big interest in business at the time. So I figured uh, if I want to be credible in the government or, or government policy area, I would go to law school. And that's what I did. So you transitioned from Paul Weiss and spent a little bit of time in government on the Hill and, of course, working for President Carter. You want to tell us a little bit about what sort of went into your thinking then? Sure. I joined Paul Weiss in part because it had a lot of people who had been in political life, one of whom was Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen had been John Kennedy's special counsel at the age of 31. He was the top advisor to President Kennedy. And I thought maybe I could do something similar to him, go into government and basically work in the White House in one day or something like that. So I went to work at Paul Weiss. I got to know Ted Sorensen. And uh, he uh, he recognized probably that I wasn't a great lawyer and probably wasn't going to be a partner in the firm. And so when I said to him, look, I'd like to go to Washington. Can you help me? He did uh, make some uh, reference calls for me. Ultimately, I became the chief counsel for a Senate subcommittee uh, chaired by Birch Bayh, then a senator from Indiana. Um, he was running for president uh, shortly after I joined his Senate campaign. As his Senate staff, uh, he dropped out of his presidential campaign, but I kind of got the lust for presidential campaigns. I then got an interview with somebody else running for president named Jimmy Carter. I didn't think he had a chance because he had been a peanut farmer, out-of-work governor, but I you know, was interested in politics, so I went to work for Carter in the campaign. When I went to work for, uh, in the general election campaign in 1976, Jimmy Carter was 34 points ahead of Gerald Ford, the incumbent president, and when I finished with Carter, um, he won the election by one point. So he often wondered, you know, what did I really need you for? Because I was doing pretty well before you showed up. But as we have observed over the years, presidents uh, pick campaign, pick their White House staffs based on who helped them campaign. And my boss had been his domestic advisor. My boss in the campaign had been Carter's principal domestic advisor. So when my boss became the domestic advisor in the White House, I became his deputy. So at the age of 27, I wasn't really qualified to be domestic the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States. But I thought Jimmy Carter probably wasn't qualified to be president. None of the people around me in the White House staff were probably that qualified either. So I said, okay, I got the job. I'll do it. So there I am, three years out of law school, at an office in the West Wing, and I'm ready to make policy. Okay. And you spent four years there thinking I'm sure you would spend more. And then you came back out to practice law one more time with a right. offer I was um, at and lucky enough to be at with you, uh, Shaw Pittman. Yes. What happened was um, I was a great job. I, I worked around the clock. I loved it because here I am going on Marine One uh, to Camp David with the president or flying from the South Lawn on Marine One to Air Force One, going traveling around. Um, I knew his positions pretty well. He relied on me a bit for a, a junior aide. He, he, you know, he listened to me from time to time, though clearly my boss was his more important advisor. And um, people came to me all the time and said, if you ever want to leave this job, call me up. So I said, why would I want to leave? I'm going to be in the second Carter term. Um, and I remember telling President Carter, look, you have no chance of not getting reelected because while there are gas lines, while you have hostages in, in Iran, 
uh, and while there's high inflation, Ronald Reagan is 69 years old. He's so old. How can anybody be president of the United States at that old an age? And so, uh, of course, I'm now older than Ronald Reagan was then, and 69 seems like a teenager today uh, for somebody who wants to be president of the United States. But uh, we lost. And so I started calling all the people who told me what a great young man I was and to call them when I wanted a job. And, of course, when you're a Carter White House aide in the era when Reagan's going to be president, people weren't exactly returning my phone calls. But a firm that you were uh, in, uh, a mid-sized firm in Washington, D.C., Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge, now uh, better known as, I guess, uh, Pillsbury Madison, right? Right. That's right. They merged. And um, I joined that firm um, as, a, I guess, a senior associate at the time. And I thought, well, I should be a partner because uh, I work in the White House, but nobody in the world thought that was true. So I ultimately came in as a senior associate. And I think probably you and I became partners of the same year. Is that right? Something like that. Just to correct the record, you came oh. in as counsel, I believe. No, um, no what, hap what happened was, go ahead. But the biggest Roldex I'd ever seen for people who remember what Roldexes look like. Um, and I think you became partner the year before. But yes. Okay. Uh, it may be right. What actually happened, I, I recall, was the head of the firm or one of the senior people, Stuart Pittman, I had proposed to become in of counsel. And Stuart Pittman said, how can a firm credibly say that we need counsel from somebody 31 years old? So I actually came in as senior associate. I proposed being a, of counsel, but they didn't like that. So I came in uh, after maybe a year, I became a partner. Um, and interestingly, there was a very interesting group of young uh, senior associates at that time. One of the people whose office was next to mine was a reasonably politically conservative guy. And he said to me that he was thinking of going in the Reagan administration. I think it was. And uh, I said, geez, you sure that's a really good idea? His name is Bill Barr. And I don't know what happened to him. I guess he, he did okay. But let's yeah, uh, like we won't go there today about our friend, uh, Bill. So we spent a few years. I, I, we had some interesting times together um, when you were out, went out to the Capitol Center and met with Abe Poland and Jerry Sachs and all those kinds of things that you were doing back then. And at some point, you obviously decided that, you know, man's greatest calling, as you like to call it, private equity, was a path forward for you. How did that come about? I didn't have any finance background. And honestly, uh, it's hard to believe that somebody who started a private equity firm wasn't interested in money. But I never had any money. My parents didn't have any money. Um, in the era that I was going to college and law school, making large sums of money wasn't on everybody's horizon. And there were maybe in the United States, there was one or two billionaires. It just wasn't a, a, a an environment where you had everybody thinking they were going to be very wealthy and wanting to be very wealthy. But um, Bill Simon, former secretary of treasury, had done a, a, a leverage buyout uh, where he bought Gibson greeting cards, where he put in basically $1 million of his own money and made in 18 months, $80 million. So I didn't know exactly what a leverage buyout was, but I, I went down the street to Bill Miller, who had been secretary of the treasury in the Carter years and said, look, one of your predecessors became very wealthy doing a leverage buyout. You must know what a leverage buyout is. Why don't we start a firm in Washington and do it? And he said, uh, I don't think I really want to do that. So I couldn't convince him to do it. So in the end, I decided to start my own uh, leverage buyout firm, not knowing anything about finance. I decided to try to go out and recruit people who had some finance experience. And I found some CFOs in the Washington area. I found a friend of mine at T. Rowe Price who helped me raise the initial $5 million to get started. And then we ultimately uh, started the firm in 1987. And today, as you pointed out, it's one of the larger private equity firms in the world. And you know, it worked out. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I could have done a lot better in building the firm, but it did turn out to be better for me than probably the practice of law and probably better than 
my, for my clients as uh, at Shaw Pittman because I probably wasn't that great a lawyer. So they probably didn't care that I really got out of the practice of law all that much. Well, they, they, they care that you went to Carlisle. And I remember some of the early, like one of the early deals I've never forgotten was Caldwell Banker. Um, yes. When, when we were saying, why are you buying a real estate brokerage firm? Well, that was probably the right uh, uh, question. Uh, Caldwell Banker was uh, a company that had been, I guess, uh, spun out of Sears World Trade at one point, and um, or Sears, and uh, we bought it, uh, but we really didn't have that much money, so it was highly levered. Uh, in the end, when the real estate debacle of uh, the late uh, 1980s came, uh, we were highly over levered, and so we did restructure the debt. Uh, we did ultimately sell the company, made a modest profit. But the people who ultimately bought it made a spectacular profit because the then CEO and the then owners just grew the company uh, dramatically. And I think they exited for probably seven to eight times their money. So it was a better deal for them than for us. But we learned a lot. Yeah. And of course, the company still exists today as CBRE, Caldwell Banker. Correct. Nobody, Correct. Not Nobody much younger than us would, would even know that that's the roots of the company. So you obviously worked very hard at Carlisle, like you do at everything. Nobody thinks you ever sleep. Um, and evolved the company, you know, went from your five founders to the to the three of you who stayed for the entire time with Steve and Daniello, and um, and you know went through this period of bringing in all these interesting former government people like Darman and Baker and Bush Bush forty three and all, all those forty one I mean all those um, people. Um, how did you sort of get your arms around building the firm and, and, and did you become um, 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 expert in investment decision-making? And what was that? How did that okay. come? Well, a couple of things. First, um, we started with very modest uh, aspirations. I remember the real estate agent who was lent, uh, renting space to us at the building we uh, occupied, 1001 uh, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, said, look, we're going to rent you 5,000 square feet, but you have an option for another 5,000 square feet for free. Just put it in the, in the lease. I said, well, I don't want to be tempted to ever be more than 5,000 square feet, so take it out. But she said, no, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. I said, I don't want to be tempted. So we originally thought we'd be a very small firm. All the private equity firms, were leveraged buyout firms as they were then called, were tiny little firms. When KKR did the famous RJR deal, in 1989, they had seven or eight investment professionals. These small firms were able to use a lot of leverage. And for those who are younger than Jay and me may not remember that, but in the early days of private equity or buyouts, uh, the average equity component was between one and 5%. The famous RJR, RJR deal of 1989 was 5% equity, 95% debt. And so um, these deals were risky. And when, when, when the economy slowed down, a lot of those deals didn't work out. They worked out wonderfully well if you got in, the economy stayed well, and you got out before uh, the enormous amount of leverage uh, ate you up. But we did a couple deals. We, uh, initially, we did them raise the money deal by deal. And then ultimately, after a couple deal by deal things worked out, we went out and raised a $100 million uh, fund, which was hard to do. And then later, we went out and raised, after co-investing alongside the $100 million, about $700 million uh, in co-investment in various deals, we then went out and raised a $1 billion fund. And then what I said to my partners was this, look, you guys have more finance experience than I do. I'm not adding that much value on the investment stuff, but here's what I can do. I, I will try to help the firm by being a fundraiser. 
I'll go out and beg for money. You guys don't want to run around the world. Uh, I'll go do that. And I tell young professionals all the time, find in, uh, a, a need for something in your organization you grow into or you, you join, because if you don't find something useful to do and something the firm needs, they, you know, they can kick you out. So Steve Jobs got kicked out of Apple. So being a founder doesn't really mean anything if you ultimately don't uh, show up to work every day and do something useful. So nobody else wanted to do fundraising. I said, I'll do that. And then what I did is I came up with two other ideas that changed the face of our firm, maybe some of the uh, private equity industry. The first thing was to try to have multiple funds. Historically, private equity firms had one fund at a time. You had one buyout fund. Four years later, you go out and raise another one. Four years later, raise another one. Uh, I decided what we would do is I'd have a buyout fund, the billion-dollar fund that I raised with the help of my partners. But then I said to them, you guys invest this fund. I'll sit on the investment committees, but I'm really not going to add that much value to that. But what I want to do is build a multidiscipline firm, similar to T. Rowe Price or Fidelity or, or Vanguard. We'll have multiple funds, take advantage of our brand name on the theory that if you'd like to some buyouts, give us a chance in venture capital. If you'd like to some buyouts in venture capital, uh, investors, please give us a chance in debt or real estate or whatever it might be. And so we built the multidiscipline firm, and then we basically centralized fundraising, legal, tax accounting, the things you would expect. The second idea I had was to globalize it. In those days, all private equity deals were done in the country where you were based. So people did deals in the United States, if you lived there, if Europe, if you lived there. In in uh, Europe, in Asia, there weren't really buyouts, but there was uh, minority stake and venture deals, and people did them, lived there. I decided I would build a group in Europe that was consist of Europeans, but we'd give them uh, you know, our expertise and so forth and help. Then we had a European group, then an Asian group, then a Japanese group. And then ultimately built a Middle East group, an African group, and a Latin American group. So we globalized the firm. So what we tried to do was to institutionalize the firm and also globalize it. And obviously, others have done the same now. Blackstone, Apollo, KKR have followed a similar pattern. And then you also, I think just around the time after Blackstone, you also took up. I'm sorry? You also took, you also took the firm public. Oh, yeah, right? yes. Okay. Yes. Um, all the private equity firms, the largest private equity firms went public. Now, when I started Carlisle, there were roughly 250 private investment firms in, in the world. Today, they're probably 10,000, if not 20,000. Uh, but only a limited number have gone public. The ones that have gone public are the better known names. They're the biggest ones, the ones that have enough ballast to justify an IPO. So Blackstone, uh, Carlisle, uh, KKR, Apollo, um, now TPG are all public. Um, why are they public? Well, when you go public, uh, you obviously monetize what you have. And so uh, there's no doubt that uh, if you monetize what you have, you create a certain amount of wealth for yourself and your family. And I have observed that people that take their firms public in the private equity world, at least, generally tend to be 60 or older. And I say, why is that? Well, when you're 60 years old or older, you realize you've lived more than you're going to live. And you begin to think about you know, what What are you leaving behind for your family or, or other, other charitable organizations that you want to give money to? So, um, you know, Carlisle went public uh, in 2012. And at that time, I was my early 60s. Uh, my partners were early, early 60s. So we did monetize it. We, obviously, we create a great deal of wealth for ourselves, our families, the charitable organizations that we support. Uh, and then running a publicly traded company is not a, a walk in the park, because when you're a private equity investor, your investors care about two things. One is the MOIC, the multiple on invested capital. And secondly, what is the internal rate of return? 
And you can go back and forth and say which is more important, and nobody has really completely resolved which is more important. It depends on your perspectives. But when you go public, the investors in your stock, the shareholders, as they're called, uh, they don't really care about the MOIC or the IRR. They want to look at whether you're going to grow each quarter more than you grew the previous quarter, and they want to be able to predict it. And the best way of doing that is looking at your fees that you're earning. It's called FRE or fee-related earnings. It, are your fee-related earnings, which is to say the amount of money you're bringing in off the management fees of your funds, are they going to grow uh, each quarter? And are they going to have a margin that is higher than they were the previous quarter? So you can have very low IRRs and very low MOEX, but if you're growing your fee income, you'll be very popular in the in the shareholder world. Um, so it's a different set of uh, parameters you have to worry about. And clearly, you're playing to two different audiences, the investors in your funds and your shareholders. And there's always a concern of whether you're going to have a conflict between the two, but it's a juggling act a bit. And you do and you do continue, just to be clear, right? You do continue to raise funds as well as have your public co public company. Yes. Investment. Yes, you're, de you're dealing with different people. When you talk to investors in your funds, you're dealing with uh, the state pension funds, which for a long time, the, the state public pension funds were the biggest source of capital for private equity firms. In 1978, in the Carter administration, I had nothing to do with it, but the Department of Labor said, well, these kind of rare risky things called leverage buyouts, venture capital, they're risky, but we think under the prudent man rule, they're now prudent investors. And so public pension funds, you can invest in it. And they began to do that. And so that became a gigantic source of capital. Then the sovereign wealth funds came along. They became a very large source of capital. Then the global pension funds became a good source of capital. And now you have a new source of capital, which are family offices are often now putting money in private equity funds. Also, high net worth individuals through uh, registered investment advisors or, or, or through large banks that roll up high net worth individuals' money. Uh, these are coming into private equity as well. So let, let's just let's talk a little bit about. I know you. I know you focused mostly on fundraising, but you obviously were involved in in investment decisions, and you led investment committees at, at, at the universities where you've been on the board and, and other places as well. So talk a little bit about you know beyond IRRs or MOACs. Talk a little bit about your sort of what you learned and how you developed an investment philosophy. Who were your mentors? I know you talked about Buffett a lot. Well, and when you're doing a deal, a private equity deal or buyout deal, uh, clearly you'd spend a fair amount of time on due diligence. Uh, you can do much more due diligence than you can on a venture capital deal because in a venture capital deal, you're really looking at uh, the, the leader of the organization who, who's came up, come up with the idea and how realistic it is and, and whether they can grow a company and, and things like that. You can do a limited amount of due diligence, not an ultimate, not an incredible amount. With private equity deals, you can do a fair amount of due diligence because the, the company already has revenue, has some earnings, has customers. And so typically in a private equity deal, you'll spend, I would say, three to six months doing due diligence. Today, uh, it's a much more complicated environment to do the due diligence than before because you need to bring in so many different experts. So in Carlisle, when we're doing it, a private equity uh, deal, where we're looking at a private equity deal, We'll, of course, have our deal people. If it's a healthcare deal, we'll have our healthcare specialist, but they will also bring in our um, outside advisor who typically will be an investment bank that might be helping to arrange the financing, the debt for the deal. You'll also bring in your lawyers to look at the legal issues. You'll probably bring in your insurance people to look at the various insurance aspects of it. We now bring in a very, uh, uh, very good ESG team to look at all the environmental, social, and governance-related issues. 
you're bringing your finance people. Uh, you're in, we have internal finance people that look at the financing as well and work with the investment banks. And so you have a large team of people. And also you probably will hire a consultant, a, a Bain or a McKinsey or a BCG or the equivalent to help you because they might have some expertise in the industry you're looking at. So it's a very long process. And of course, the way the business works, it, uh, it's no, there's no such thing as a really truly proprietary deal anymore. Everybody wants to do proprietary deals. Of course, the implication of the word proprietary is, well, you, somebody's coming to you and, and says, look, if you want to buy this company, I'll sell it to you. And here's a reasonable price. If you meet a reasonable price, it's yours. Um, that's a fantasy. Everybody has fantasies in life. And private equity people have fantasies, too, that that's going to happen. But it just doesn't happen very much because typically the people selling the company realize they'll get sued for not doing a good job of getting a good price if they just say to somebody, Carlisle Blackstone, it's your deal at a reasonable price. So typically, an investment banker will conduct some kind of auction. And a proprietary deal is more or less means that you only have two or three people that you're competing with in an auction and that maybe the seller likes you more and may prefer you, but you always have somebody you have to compete against. But so you 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 have all those consultants and experts um, in in the in the virtual room or otherwise with you, and you get a long investment memo, um, and then you got to analyze them. I'm sure you've seen you know hundreds and thousands of deals that you've passed on. What 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 do you focus on? What's the distinguishing factor? What you know? How do you you assess? the risk and, and, and make the decision to go in a deal versus pass on. Well, of course, it's a state of it's an art uh, to some extent. Uh, nobody is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, but what you're looking for in the buyout world is, in the end, can you improve the company? If the company is perfect, and no company probably is perfect, but if the company's perfect, there's no point to talking about buying it because what could you do to improve it? So what you're trying to do is ultimately get a rate of return from the investment that will be consistent with what your investors wanted. So in the early days of private equity, people were, were looking at deals where they thought they could make 20, 25% net internal rates of return. The days when you put in 5% equity, borrowed 95% of the debt, and you could fix the company up and do some so-called financial engineering and get out in two or three years with a 25% net internal rate of return. So people would assess, could you really do that? The price you have to pay to get the deal, given the leverage you can put on, to it, put on it, can you fix the company adequately with the management team you're going to bring in or is already there so you can get that kind of rate of return? Now, people are still doing that today, but uh, people's, uh, I would say, expectations of rates of return probably have lowered, in part because you have to put much more equity in. You're putting 5% equity in. The likelihood of a higher rate of return, if everything works out, is better than if you're putting in 45 or 50% equity, which is more typical today. Um, also, today, interest rates are higher. So when you're borrowing money, it's going to cost you more. Um, you also are trying to figure out whether you have a good management team. Roughly 50% of the deals that private equity firms do result in a different CEO being at the company at the exit than at the beginning. And that's because some CEOs are good at leveraged environments. Some are not. Some are not as uh, you know willing to work as hard. And even the incentives you might get in private equity might not be enough for them to really work harder and make the changes you need. And sometimes you have to bring in an outside person. And that's not atypical, of course, in the industry. And the industry has changed dramatically from the early days. In the early days of borrowing 95% of the debt, leveraging, uh, doing some so-called financial engineering and hoping for the best, today what all these large firms have is a, tier, a series of uh, of outside advisors who've either been CEOs, COOs, CFOs, 
and so forth. And they all serve as senior advisors to firms like ours or KKR or Blackstone. And, you know, we have, let's say, a team in healthcare. If we're going to do a healthcare deal, we might have the former CEO of Pfizer working with us as one of our advisors. And we'll go in using his expertise and our own internal expertise and ask, oh, can we improve this company to get the kind of rate of return we want? Today, the rate of return that most people are probably thinking is realistic in a buyout, given all the other constraints, higher interest rates, more equity put in, uh, and the higher price you have to pay because there's more competition. I would say uh, today, rates of return probably uh, in the net internal rate of return that we're out of 15, 16, 17, 18% would probably be uh, considered quite good uh, today. Uh, and, and it's gotten, it's changed a little bit in the last year or two because when interest rates were very low and you could borrow a lot of money, uh, but uh, you, you were probably still looking at rates of return of 17, 18, or 19%. Why? Because the competition was so much higher, you had to pay a higher multiple. In the early days of private equity, when the sellers were not quite as sophisticated or maybe as well advised, or nobody really knew exactly how much value you could add if, if you're a private equity player, um, you would probably be able to um, get a, a rate of return that might be 25% net. But to do that, you were you were paying seven, eight, or nine times EBITDA. So today, um, up until recently, people have been paying 13, 14, 15 times EBITDA. Why? There's more competition. So everybody shows up in a deal, and ultimately you bid up the, uh, the price. Uh, because of the concerns about the economy, are we going into a recession or not? Because interest rates are higher now, I would say, uh, today, it's a little bit different. Uh, probably EBITDA numbers are coming down for mature companies, probably into the low double-digit range, not 14, 15, 16 times, but maybe 10, 11, 12 times. And, and obviously, for lower industrial companies, low-growth low growth companies, probably are looking at even high single-digit EBITDA multiples. So um, it's it's a different world than it was before, uh, much more competition for, for, for certain. But why are people still investing with people like us, and why are we growing? That's because in the end, the rate of return that private equity firms can get to their investors is better than anything else you can legally do with your money, probably. So if you go back over the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and look at the average rate of return of private equity funds, they generally will outperform the public market averages by somewhere between 200 and 500 basis points. Now, 500 basis points may not sound that much, or even 200 might not sound that much, obviously, but... If you're managing tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you know it's a lot of a lot of money potentially that you you, you earn. So if you're putting in, you know, in a particular deal, a hundred million or two hundred or three hundred million dollars, and you're getting a rate of return that's higher than you can get in the public market averages by two or to five hundred basis points, that's pretty good. But of course, people when they go into our funds, they don't really want the public market averages to be compared against the uh, ultimate private equity firm averages. They want to be in a top quartile deal or top quartile fund. And the top quartile deals will outperform the public market averages by somewhere between, I would say, uh, you know, one to 2,000 basis points, which is to say if the public market averages are, let's say, on over the last 100 years or so, the S&P 500 is probably averaged 6%. So if you can get a uh, rate of return 1,000 basis points over that by being in a top quartile fund, a fund that's averaging say 16 17% net that's a very good rate of return so lots of the issues you touched on are similar both in you know private equity leverage buyout investing and real estate investing 
and and as you know, Carlisle's done plenty of real estate investing. Your your family office declaration uh, has is, is out in the market, and um, talk a little bit about their most recent report about the opportunities they see. But is the cyclicality that we we see in real estate that's it's similar to what you deal with in private equity? Well, everything is cyclical in some respects, but I would say over the last 50 years, 100 years or so, real estate is a bit more cyclical because real estate is much more tied to interest rates than probably the private equity world is. Private equity, obviously, you're borrowing money, but it's not as uh, rates of return are not uh, as closely correlated with interest rates in the private equity world as they are in real estate. As everybody on this call knows, real estate uh, is much more dependent on interest rate uh, than I would think private equity is. And therefore, the cyclicality that you see in economies probably affects real estate much more than it does private equity. Now, private equity is affected, of course, but I would say the correlation is probably much greater in real estate than it is in buyouts. Does that mean, at a, at, without you know, divulging any confidence, that a, at a private equity firm that's invested, as you said, in sort of this mutual fund group of, of assets, um, you would reduce your real estate commitment in this period of the cycle? Well, uh, that would be logical. But uh, the truth is, uh, real estate organizations that have money to invest, their investors do want to get it invested because if it's not invested, they're getting virtually no return on it. So even if you're going to get a lower rate of return, I think uh, investors still wanted some of it invested or a lot of it invested, if not all of it, but they want more care to make certain that deals aren't going to uh, go zero. So you might put more equity into it and you have to do uh, certain types of things like assess what kind of real estate is going to be the best in the next couple of years. So over the last, let's say five years ago, if you were very prescient, you might have said, you know, I don't really think downtown office buildings in certain major cities are going to be quite as good as they used to be. Now, you were prescient because you, you probably didn't know this, but because of COVID, a lot of people were not going to the offices. A lot of people were now coming back to their offices or not using as much space as before. So as everybody on this call knows, downtown office buildings in major cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago are probably not worth exactly what they were thought to be worth five years ago. Uh, so on the other hand, if you were to invest in different types of uh, real estate five years ago or today, like let's say uh, um, moderate uh, income uh, rental properties or uh, let's say um, logistics warehouses. Or manu uh, maybe, manu maybe manufactured housing. Yes. Those kind of things uh, seem to be doing pretty well. So uh, I would say uh, I would expect that there will be a lot of real estate defaults on office buildings over the next couple of years or so. Uh, you would know better than I, Jay. But my impression is that right now, a lot of the banks that would traditionally take over some of these uh, office buildings, which you could say are in default, are likely to be in default. Um, a lot of the, the banks are saying, look, we don't really want these properties back. You developer, you do the best you can to fix it up and we'll, we'll, we'll give you some, uh, forbearance. Uh, also, as many people on this call know, when banks lend money, they probably assume that it's possible something could go wrong, but if something goes wrong, it'll go down in value by 15% or 20%. But now, uh, because of the COVID related factors and other economic issues, uh, the, the value of some of these office buildings may be down by 50%. So the banks are saying, I don't really want to take it back at this point because I'm going to have a bigger write down than I otherwise would have. So I'll hold it on my books for 
a discount to what I'd lent it out, but let the developer see if he can really work it out and make it better than it was. So there's always some hope there that maybe the property will come back and, and, and so forth. So I don't think you see the banks rushing in to take over these properties the way you did in the late 1980s or so. Yeah, I, I think that's obviously right. Um, the, you know, kick the can down the road um, philosophy from the global financial crisis worked. I think, um, you know, in this situation, the banks don't want to take these properties back for lots of reasons, not the least of which nobody really knows, um, you know, when people will return to office and what the urban cores will look like. You, I'm sure, probably heard last week your former colleague, um, Jerome Powell, talked about his very concerned about the office sector and, and what it means and how closely they're watching it and reported on, you know, there's $1.5 trillion dollars of office debt coming due in the next three years. And, and what you touched on, how the banks are gonna deal with refinancing and close and, and, and keeping those properties stable um, is a big challenge out there for, for the real estate industry. Right, I mean, in the late 1980s, the US government was faced with this issue for the first time since the Great Depression. And what it did is it created the RTC, took over a lot of real estate properties. And then to get rid of those properties, they sold them at discounts that they thought were reasonable to people who were interested in buying at discounts. But it turned out the discounts were much greater than people realized. And so when the world came back, uh, a lot of those people made incredible uh, returns. And that really began, I think, the opportunistic real estate world. Historically, as everybody in this call knows, real estate was not a double-digit rate of return world. It was basically a high mid-single-digit, mid, mid, mid high single-digit rate of return, depending on the type of real estate. But when the RTC was done with things and people came in and bought those properties, when the ultimate results occurred, you were seeing double-digit rates of return. And so people began to build a business called the opportunistic real estate business, which is to say, finding things at deep discount and getting double-digit rates of return. And that's really what uh, the large private equity firms who have real estate divisions are really doing these days to some extent, obviously it's buying opportunistic real estate, hopefully getting these double digit rates of return. So, so look, we sit on this knife's edge today, right? With these predictions of recession, um, which you've talked about um, before today's wall street journal reports about this bull market um, in options and the NASDAQ and the, um, um, S&P being up pretty significantly since the first of the year, driven by tech companies. I mean, where do you think we're headed over the next you know, six to 12 months? Well, the advantage of making predictions 12 months out is that it's so far to down the road that people probably won't remember what you actually predicted. Um, so a lot of people make predictions and probably don't get reminded of their mistakes. So I'll probably be in that category too. I, yesterday, I was at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, and I interviewed Larry Fink. And he had a view, uh, that's you know, the head of Black uh, BlackRock, and he had a view somewhat similar to mine, which is this is the most predicted recession in American history, but I'm not clear that's actually going to happen. Uh, right now, uh, we've been so-called kicking the can down the road. And uh, while the recession seems like logically it should happen, we really haven't had it. In fact, in Carlisle's case, we look at our numbers at our companies and our portfolios all the time, and we correlate it with, uh, with macroeconomic uh, events in, in, in the global economy and the U.S. economy. And right now, based on what we see, we do not see uh, our companies uh, seeing dramatically lower uh, sales or things like that. And as a result, we do not think that there's a recession that's imminent. Um, I would say, if you know, who can predict a year in advance? But at the moment, 
uh, we, with very low unemployment. Uh, I don't see right now that that uh, uh, a recession is, is is likely to happen. And now, of course, things can always change. Who there's always going to be a mac uh, a geopolitical event you couldn't anticipate. Who could have anticipated what happened over the weekend? Who knows what China might do with Taiwan? Who knows what oh, what war can always break out in the Middle East? And those can have effects on the economy. But today, I think it's possible that we could get through the next year or so without a recession. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be high economic growth. I think this year, the United States will probably grow somewhere between one and one and a half percent. So not terrific, but an economy of our size, um, it's not so bad. So if a high net worth or you know family office came to you today to declaration or otherwise and said, I want to put $100 million out there, um, what, what, what would your advice be? Well, my advice to anybody that wants to invest is the, these things, and I put this in my investment book. Uh, one, if you're going to invest with somebody, make sure you look at their, their uh, track record. That's the best indicator of future performance, not a guarantor, but a good indicator. Second, make sure the people who um, achieve that, rate, that uh, track record are still there. Uh, make sure the younger people have a piece of the profit, so they're going to stay there and work very hard. Make sure the people who you're investing with are putting a fair amount of their own money alongside yours. Make sure you understand the fees. Make sure you can get the information about the value of your investment on a regular basis. Make sure that they're not likely to do something that's going to embarrass you, that's antithetical to your beliefs, um, and so forth. So if you go through all those hurdles and you find a number of firms you're interested in, I would say, uh, you know, if you're going to invest in real estate, I would do a cross-section. I would not put money too much right now in office uh, space. I think that obviously that's going to be a challenging area for a while. But I do think there are some areas that are probably not going to be bad going forward. And I would say, uh, unless you really know exactly what you're doing, probably you're better off to invest in the, your own country than to invest outside of your country. That's a much more complicated undertaking, particularly because currency value currencies can fluctuate so much more uh, and you're not likely to be able to hedge against it really in a, in a realistic way and over a longer period of time. But so if you're investing in the United States, I would give my money probably to a couple different groups. I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. I would probably look at some groups that are are, are probably um, taking advantage of the demographic uh, situation in the United States. A lot of people are aging. So there's a lot of retirement communities. Uh, some would say assisted living, other kinds of things. But also you have a lot of people who are younger who are not buying houses as much as they used to. It used to be that part of the American dream was to buy your own house. Well, the younger generation doesn't seem as interested in buying their own house. So they're renting more. So rental properties for younger people, I think, will, will probably grow quite well. And also look at what cities you're likely to invest in. Investing in the biggest cities uh, may have some more challenges because some of the bigger cities may not have population growth. You should look for places where you're going to see a lot of population growth. And right now, that tends to be in the south and southwest, southeast, probably more than the northeast or midwest. Okay. So given your perspective, both um, on the dark side of being a a lawyer for a little while and all the things you've done since leaving private practice back in the 1980s. What, what would you describe as sort of the best characteristics of the best advisors, lawyers um, that you've dealt with? Well, the best lawyers are lawyers that you have confidence in, that you think are interested in your uh, needs and, and best interests as opposed to just whatever is their best interest. People that are talking to you regularly, not just when you have a deal, uh, but when they, they're, you know, they're talking to you about a whole variety of other things. People who are 
um, I think not obsessed with uh, billing the, the last nickel out of you, uh, if possible. Uh, people who uh, are willing to, if you make a big mistake, they're willing to take a haircut in what they're willing to charge you. Uh, people who are with you and through thick and thin. Um, people who are, um, I would say, able to add value by they might bring you a deal from time to time. They might bring you a financing source from time to time. They might even bring you an investor from time to time. So people who can do things beyond just the traditional uh, legal practice of getting the documents done, and then also making certain that you understand what is in the documents and making certain that you you aren't just signing something that the lawyers have come up with, but they don't explain it to you in a way that uh, you know is, is easily understood. So there are lots of different, great, they're great uh, real estate lawyers, as we know. And I think those are the kind of things that I often look for. Now, when I uh, was a lawyer, um, I used to think that the most important part of a business decision was picking the lawyer. When I started getting into private equity, I delegated it to our general counsel. And honestly, uh, while we paid out, I'm sure, hundreds of millions of dollars of legal fees over the last 35 years, I couldn't really tell you uh, exactly who we paid the most legal fees to. I think I know our most important law firms, but I don't really look at the legal bills anymore. I used to you know, when I, Carlisle first started, I would say, what are the legal bills? And I would say, wow, okay, I guess that's fair or not fair or, or see if we can get an adjustment. I, 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 this is all delegated now to our lawyers and I really don't pay attention to it. So I guess, um, you know, the business people, you know, don't really look at the legal bills as much as maybe they should. Uh, I don't pay attention to them at this point because I assume that general counsel is looking at the bills and generally, you know, if it's a lost deal or something like that, you'll probably make it up to the lawyers in a, in a deal that goes, for, goes forward. Yeah, I, I think you can be confident that your general counsels and business people, for sure the ones we've dealt with in the real estate, so okay. I do a very good job. All right, at good. A um, couple of last questions and then we'll let you go. So what, what, what would you say is the best investment advice you ever got? The best investment advice that anybody can give anybody else, and I got it as well, is don't put all your eggs in one basket. So diversify. Uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to uh, put all your, your your money into one deal and it's going to work out perfectly. So diversify. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And then secondly, know what you're investing in. Don't just listen to somebody else. Make sure you understand what you're investing in. So have it explained to you. If you can't understand what the investment's about, you, know, you can go find something else. So don't uh, get... Uh, uh, bewildered by a new technology that sounds like it's going to uh, change the world, but you don't really understand it. So just be nervous about uh, new things you don't understand. And then also look at who you're uh, investing alongside. If you're investing alongside people you've never heard of, in some cases, or you're doing deals with people you've never heard of, be careful. So try to invest with people who know what they're doing, have very good reputations. And I'll just give you a, a word of advice on that I got when I first started practicing law. When I went to Paul Weiss, the head of the firm then was Judge Rifkin, a very famous federal judge who resigned as a federal judge because at the time, the judge salary in the federal courts was $10,000 a year. And he said, I can't support my family on $10,000 a year. So he went back, started, uh, he joined a firm and then ultimately became Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. So he gathered the young associates every year into his office. Uh, and he would say to them, I got some words of advice for you. And um, I looked it up recently. I remember thinking he was a kind of old guy giving advice to these young people. I was 23. I looked it up and he's, he was young, he's younger than I am today. He was 71 when he was giving this speech. Um, so 
um, his speech basically was that, you know, life is very short and um, you can uh, you carry around with you only one thing in life, which is your reputation. And it takes five minutes to ruin a reputation and a lifetime to build it. So worry about your reputation. Don't take ethical shortcuts that are ultimately possibly going to ruin your reputation or not the right thing to do in any event. So always worry about your reputation. Try to, uh, you know, not do things that ethically are going to be challenged because in the end, that's not a good thing to do. So when you're making an investment decision, um, I think it's very important to look at whether it's a good thing to do ethically. Yeah. You know, so somebody can say, here's a stock tip. Here's somebody, I have some inside information. Uh, you got to be wary of that kind of stuff. And ultimately, if you're going to be a successful investor, do your own homework. Don't rely on somebody else to do it. Understand what you're investing in. Diversify. And in the end, you'll sleep much better at night. Okay. Last, last question. What would you tell yourself, given all that you've done, accomplished, and um, around the world, what would you tell your 25-year-old self today? I would say that, the, and that's what I tell young people all the time, do not think you're going to be Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of college, starting a company, and it's going to you know, revolutionize the world. That is unlikely to happen. It happens, but it's unlikely. What you should do is get a good education uh, and then find something you think you're interested in. And then if you don't like it, find something else. And then if you don't like that, find something else. Nobody ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love what you do. You have to love it so much so you can't wait to go to work every every day. As Warren Buffett says, tap dance to work every day. So experiment. I tell my own children, try different things. Find something that you really love. And if you love it, it won't be work. It'll be pleasure. And so I guess I would tell myself, don't be afraid to experiment. Uh, don't be afraid to, to leave the practice of law or do something else. And if you find something you love, great. Uh, I remember when I started Carlisle, I, I remember reading that uh, entrepreneurs tended to start their businesses between 28 and 37. And after 37, it was very unlikely somebody was going to start a business. And I read that when I was 37. So I kind of rushed ahead and said, I better do something now. Great. David, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. My really pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jay. Appreciate it. Bye.